0: its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding
1: down, try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor.
2: Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, um, and I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I, of course, want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the second hour, they are American Bonanza, Lucky Strike Resources, Helio Resources, Marathon Gold, Meadow Bay Gold, Metchnor resources, Merrick's gold, Brazil resources, American Bonanza, and Paramount Gold and Silver. Well, John, when we went to break, we were talking a little bit about uh Iceland. Very interesting story there. the country resisted uh further indebtedness, uh didn't uh you know accept the bailout, they don't have to pay it back, as you said. It reminded me a little bit of a of an experience that I had, a personal experience that I had uh, a number of years ago when I was much younger, I tried to put together a, a company. It was a public company and I tried to build some yogurt stores in and around New York City. And I went out and, uh, I took a, a mortgage against my home to build the first store. I think it was a quarter of a million dollars or so. Uh, and the store went, we went bankrupt in about three months or so. And I had this clever lawyer who, um, uh, actually was working in a bank at the time and, uh, this lawyer suggested that I um, I claim lender liability, you know, I should blame the banks for, for getting me into trouble. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't in good conscience do that because I was the one seeking the loan. I had to go and, and, and prove that and some asbestos shingles at the back of the property weren't going to cause any problems. And I, I jumped through all kinds of hoops to get the loan. Uh, but in a way, this is what uh, this is the opposite side of the coin. What you're talking about is we induce we as the United States induce countries to take on loans, or let's say the banking interests do that, uh, and they're doing it overseas and they're doing it to American citizens. They actually do trap people into uh, into borrowing money they can never pay back. Um, so uh, this so this is a movement. You're saying uh, you've got Ecuador. I suppose Venezuela would be in that camp. Iceland. Any other countries that are sort of resisting? What about uh, Argentina and Brazil have resisted
3: somewhat successfully in the uh-huh. in the past. And I, I think you know the people of Greece and Italy and uh, are calling on their country to do this also. Um, but leaders are afraid to do it, and and I often think probably those leaders are, are sometimes afraid to do it because there've been threats uh, against them, and maybe not just threats on their life, but threats of exposing. You know, some skeleton in their cars yeah. uh, that are creating it. We have to take that into account these days. Right. Uh, you know, one of the most interesting ones is Ecuador, uh, because the president of Ecuador, Rafael Correa, it, has a PhD in economics from the University of Illinois. Uh-huh. He understands our system extremely well. And uh, it, the debt in Ecuador was taken on in the 70s when I was an economic hitman and working in Ecuador. And I, uh, of course, remember very well that the p- people who were running the country in those days were military dictators. Who were put into power by the CIA, by us. <laughs> and then I went down and you know, it wasn't very difficult for me and other economic hitmen to get these guys who essentially owed their, 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 you know, their jobs to us uh, to sign off on these huge loans. And then the money never went to Ecuador. Some of it, a little bit went to A little bit went to them, mm-hmm. but but the majority of it just went from a bank in Washington to a bank in San Francisco to hire Bechtel or Brown and Root in Houston or someone to to build hydroelectric projects and industrial parks and things like that in Ecuador that benefited these military dictators and a few wealthy families who own the big industries that use most of the electricity or own the the, the, the the growing malls and things like that. Mm-hmm. And yet the majority of people didn't benefit. The mm-hmm. dictators have now gone. They've moved to Miami or sweet Switzerland or someplace. And Rafael Correa, President of Ecuador, is saying, Hey, you know, my people don't owe this money. We never agreed to this.
2: Mm-hmm. We never get any
3: benefits from
2: it. The people never agreed, right?
3: Right. The people never agreed. Mm-hmm. The dictators agreed and the dictators were put into power by us and we were telling them you damn <laughs> well better agree. So that's a, that's a very good model, an example of the, of the way this was, has been done, and I happen to have been personally involved in that one. Uh, but it's, it's happened in so many countries, Jay, and, and uh, now it's, 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 just, it includes Europe today, it includes Italy and Spain and Portugal and Ireland and Iceland and Greece, and it's, um, it's now happening here to us in the United States
2: too it's interesting you you talk about this and i am remembering now um uh, your confessions of an economic hitman when they ch- when they when they decided to try to find people for the job uh they wanted people that didn't have that weren't sparkling clean so that you could actually so that you could actually um uh, you know hold something over their heads right and expose them if they if they didn't play the game right or at least that's that's part of it so if you can find politicians who are squeaky clean they're not really the ones you want to see around you want you want to have yeah. people in there that that have some skeleton in their closet. That if you expose them, you scare the devil out of them, and they're not going to. And they'll go along with the program.
3: And there's not a few people that don't have some skeleton. But even like today, I mean, we can create skeletons. You know, they, 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 the 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 shot that was fired across Obama's bow. bow. <laughs> As to whether he is an American citizen or not, whether he was born in Indonesia, I mean, these kinds of things are these are these warnings that that let 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 these guys know. Well, you're vulnerable. We we you don't even need to have a skeleton in your closet. We can
2: create one. We'll create one. You know this new
3: movie that's just out, J Edgar, about J Edgar Hoover. Just saw it the other night, and it's it's interesting because you know Hoover said information is power, and he kept these. Personal private files on people like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the mm-hmm. Kennedys, and so on. He was ready to bring out if they if they didn't do what he wanted, mm-hmm. and and you know that's a good example of of uh, of what what goes on on a big, very big level against world leaders. Mm-hmm. But but today we've discovered that we don't even need those files. Mm-hmm. The truth doesn't really matter if no. if, you, if you've got a good. Um, Intelligence community that can leak rumors and make them seem very credible, leak them to the press that's very friendly to them anyway because it's owned by the big corporations, uh, you can destroy a person's career even if it's what you're saying isn't a true skeleton in the closet, it's an invented skeleton.
2: Yeah, that's uh, very interesting, John, it reminds me of, um uh, another guest I've had on my show named Dmitry Orlov, who's written a book called Reinventing Collapse, and he, he's comparing what's going on in the U.S. now with the um, with, with the Soviet Union. And he said, you know, at least he he says he thinks that our propaganda machine in the U.S. is far superior to anything he saw in the Soviet Union. He said, if you saw the hammer and sickle painted on the wall, you knew what it symbolized. You knew that they were thugs. And in the U.S., we have people that have graduated with PhDs behind their names from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, uh, wearing nice Brooks Brothers suits, speaking very eloquently on television. And how could you question these gentlemen?
3: Right. Yes, it's very subtle. It's very dangerous. And I think it's a huge threat to democracy that we, we we believe that our media uh, is telling us the truth, and and I think for the most part the mainstream media, you know, the uh, obviously not referring to your show. And there's a yeah. lot of people out there doing good work like you are. But if you if you look at the ABCs and the NBCs, and and uh, you know, Wall Street Journal, and uh, U.S. News and World Report, New York Times,
2: mm-hmm.
3: I'd have to say that at very best that's entertainment, and yeah. at its worst, it's pure propaganda.
2: Yeah. And they might let a few truth uh, tellers in from time to time to to make it seem like it's sure the red I remember. Very interesting comment when um Bernie Sanders and Ron Paul, I guess from both sides of the political spectrum, uh were were sort of chastising Greenspan and it was I can't remember it was Chairman Oxley and the House committee, um House Banking Committee that apologized for the behavior of these these uh these guys. And Greenspan said, well, you know, this is what America is all about. We have this ability to be free and to talk and to express crazy ideas. You know, this is what a democracy is all about. And I thought to myself, "Mm, oh man, you know, this isn't, uh, are you kidding me? You know, because, uh, those guys then are looked at as, you know, having three heads. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're weirdos that are, that are basically marginalized because their ideas don't Aren't in sync with the mainstream, so yeah. the propaganda machine is very effective. Well, you know, we've been warned about what was going on. What has been going on? I think we're losing our liberties to a great extent. I think you would probably agree with that. Uh, we certainly, we're losing uh, our our living standards. The masses of, of middle class Americans uh, is, is, is the, the middle class is dwindling. I think there's no question about that. The economic uh, the numbers will prove that. But we were warned. Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, in his famous military-industrial complex speech said, and I think it was right before he left office, he warned about that. John Kennedy warned about um, warned about secret societies. Uh, it seems to me that the Federal Reserve is certainly a secret society. You suggested maybe it shouldn't even exist, and I, I'm with you on that one. Uh, Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex. Well, these things have come to roost, haven't they? They, they really are here now.
3: Well, they have, but I think there's also something very significant here, Jay, that I've always had to ask myself, why did Eisenhower mention the military-industrial complex in his last speech, his exit speech from the uh-huh. White House? Why did he never mention it when he was president and could have done something? Yeah. Why did he never bring it up again?
4: Yeah.
3: And, and I think that the answer is obvious. Having been the highest military officer in the land, he knew how vulnerable he was, mm-hmm. and he, he had one shot and sort of, you know, W- without any warning, uh, to to bring this up and warn America about it, w- without you know being in a position where anybody could stop him, they had no idea he was going to say this on his exit speech. Mm. Once he'd said it, uh, he couldn't say any more without being uh, fearful, mm. a- and uh, he couldn't have said it while he was in office. And the only president since then who's really tried to do anything was Kennedy, and Kennedy's the only president in my lifetime. Who hasn't been put into office by big money from outside sources? His money came from his father primarily, Hmm. and he was, you know, he put down big steel, which was the backbones of the U.S. economy back Mm -hmm. in those days. That's changed. He went up against uh, Roger Blau of U.S. Steel and and won. He put he put Roger Blau down. There was a huge confrontation between them, and he won it. Kennedy won it. It seemed like, and Mm -hmm. he also then, but in the process, he alienated big business. Mm-hmm. Hugely, Blau went after him after that. You know, Blau, Blau lost the battle, but he, he used this to turn big business against Kennedy. Kennedy also went up against the CIA with the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis. The CIA was furious at Kennedy uh, because they, they, they didn't think he did what he should have done in both of those cases. And as a result, Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, so the only president that's really stood up to the system Eisenhower didn't stand up to it. He exposed it and walked away. Mm -hmm. Kennedy actually tried to stand up to it, and he was assassinated. Um, Ever since then, presidents have have given in to the system, totally, Mm -hmm. all along the line. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Bill Clinton, near the end of his presidency, he actually was speaking out in a way against the Federal Reserve. It sounded like he was beginning to. Mm. And, uh, it looked as though when he got out of office, he might do things that were contrary to some of the things he'd done while he was in office. Mm And so I think Monica Lewinsky at this point was, was brought out. Linda Tripp, who had worked for the Bush administration, been in the Pentagon. I think Linda Tripp was a real economic hit woman, or hmm. maybe not economic. She was a behind-the-scenes hit woman. Mm-hmm. She made sure that she was wired, and Monica was wired, and Monica kept the dress. And I think Monica was sort of an innocent bystander who was pushed into this position hmm. by, by Linda. But the fact of the matter is... It brought down a presidency. He was he was impeached, and it it really emasculated Clinton. He's come back in the popular eye as a as a a popular guy now, Mm -hmm. but his power base was removed, and it told every politician once and for all by God, you better watch your step because we don't need a gun anymore. In Kennedy's day, everybody knew he was having affairs with Marilyn Monroe and Angie Dickinson and other uh, women, and that was okay. But by the time Clinton became president, suddenly the moral fiber of this country had changed significantly, and you could bring a president down by innuendo. You didn't have to use a bullet. And that's still yeah. true today. That's still true today, and, and Obama's very aware of that.
2: Yeah. Well, a lot of the moral fiber, the people that really went after Clinton the hardest, were the same people that were sort of uh, perhaps the Christian right uh, aspects of the Republican Party that really thought that we should kill a commie for Christ or uh or perhaps a muslim for christ or whatever you know so it's uh, the hypocrisy i think runs deep but in any event that's a little yeah, bit
3: worked. i mean the country kind of lined up against clinton and, and and you know the the moral fiber had changed women felt very sorry for for hillary and so did other people and and those those emotions were played upon in a in a big way and and i'm not saying people shouldn't have felt sorry for hillary i don't know but but what what was really a personal issue uh and a moral issue became a huge political issue, and the president was impeached because he, whatever he did with Monica Lewinsky, which, if you if you think about it, it wasn't even anything. It doesn't seem as though it was all that serious. You know, I don't think they even actually had sex. There was something about a cigar and underpants. I can't even remember the details. But it seems <laughs> in retrospect, most of the world at the time was laughing at us for even thinking about it. But the fact of the matter is. It had nothing to do with the facts behind it. It had everything to do with sending a very strong message to Clinton and every other major political candidate since then that they're very, very vulnerable. Well,
2: vulnerability, uh, is, is certainly of interest. And I think of, uh, Ron Paul, and I don't know what your thoughts are about Ron Paul, but I know, I believe, and I've known Ron for many years, and I'm his, uh, um... Uh, his chief of staff is a personal friend of mine, and I believe that he is the only Republican candidate that is really serious about pulling back troops, uh, reducing America's role overseas, and I know that, uh, one person in his organization told me, he said he thinks that if Ron really gains any traction, uh, in the Republican primary, and if he were to, uh, to emerge as, as the candidate, that somebody would have to arrange an accident.
3: Well, that's the sad part of it, Jay, and it, it, again, it, it wouldn't even have to be a physical accident, necessarily, it could be, but just march something out against Ron Paul that he did, he took cocaine sometime and once in his life or he fondled some woman someplace, and it doesn't even have to be true. Yeah. But, if, but if, if 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 it comes out of the FBI or the CIA and it seems credible and the New York Times gets a hold of it and and they're guaranteed by credible sources that it's the truth, uh, then it's going to bring him down, whether it's the truth or not.
2: No, well, I know the man, and I wouldn't believe it in a minute. But any, in any event, as you say, it doesn't matter what's true; it's perception that matters. That's really the truth. Another yes, and a lot of a
3: lot of people that don't like Ron uh, <laughs> Paul, including all of his political adversaries, they would believe it and they would make hay out of
2: it. Oh, absolutely. And and most of the guys that stand on the stage in the uh, in the primary de- uh, debates certainly don't want him around either. Um, well. Interestingly enough I remember the last go around Ron Paul was suggesting and I think it was he even had some CIA people that were suggesting that uh, that the reason we were hit on 9-11 was because we were occupying various countries maybe Saudi Arabia was a sensitive one and Ron made the statement that the reason they were over there is because we're over because the reason they came here is because we're over there and I remember Giuliani snaring at him for that uh, viewpoint but but what are your thoughts? Uh, is that a credible idea?
3: Well, of course. I mean, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, there, there is no such thing as global terrorism. First of all, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, an ism implies a, a shared ideology. So there's mm-hmm. capitalism, the socialism, there's Catholicism. There's a lot of isms. Yeah. But I've interviewed members of FARC in Colombia and Somali pirates from Africa and Al Qaeda from the Middle East and none of them have a shared philosophy. Uh You know, the only thing they share is desperation. Uh, These Hmm. are people that feel that they've been treated unjustly. In the case of Somali pirates, they're fishermen whose waters have been totally fished out by foreign vessels illegally. on the case of FARC in colombia, the, the peasants whose lands have been destroyed by oil companies and, and hydroelectric dams, etc. Um, this is not an ism there 's no global terrorism. There are people around the globe creating acts of terror because they 're desperate and yes, desperate people do desperate things. So if we want to have homeland security, the first step is to recognize that the planet is our homeland. And that as long as there are starving people or people that feel that they're being treated unjustly by our corporations and other things, mm. uh, that they're going to resort to terrorism. Mm-hmm. Now, there will always be a few fanatics, and they may be wealthy people like Ben Laden. He was a wealthy fanatic. Uh, and there will always be, you know, rapists and I think, and people with a few nuts loose in their brains. We can't stop that. Yeah. But what we do know is that if, if those people don't have mass followings unless there's mass uh, desperation, and so, yes, you know, sure. If if, if 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 those crimes at 9-11 were perpetuated by people from the Middle East, it's undoubtedly because they felt that in the Middle East that they've been treated unjustly.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that uh, Ron Paul made the point. He said, "Suppose that the Chinese put their ships out in our, uh, you know, the Gulf of Mexico and started." Uh... Bombing raids over the United States, How would <laughs> exactly. we feel about the Chinese? exactly um, yes. and, um, in chapter fifteen of your book, Hoodwinked, uh, you talk about capitalism in the first decade or so after the American Revolution. Talk to us about capitalism, then compare it that capitalism that we had now uh, then with the one that we have now, which you've termed as uh, predatory capitalism.
3: Well, you know, capitalism has been around for about 400 years, and it's gone through many different iterations. But for the first hundred years that the United States was a country, no corporation could get a charter in any state unless it proved that it was going to serve a public interest. Charters lasted on average 10 years, and then the Company had to go back and prove that it had served a public interest and would continue to do so. Mm. That all changed in the late 1800s when the Supreme Court decided that corporations had the rights but not the responsibilities of individuals. I happen to think it's a pretty good idea though, that this idea that corporations should be serving a public interest is very important. So, and In fact, when I went to business school, we were kind of headed in that direction uh, uh, much more than today. I was taught that a good CEO makes a decent rate of return for his investors, but more importantly, he takes good care of his employees. He gives them health care, and he gives them retirement pensions. He takes good care of his customers and his suppliers, and he's a good community citizen, pays his taxes, and he goes beyond that. He helps build schools and libraries, et cetera all that changed with this whole Milton Friedman Chicago school of economics concept that the only responsibility of a CEO was to maximize profits regardless of everything else regardless of social and environmental costs i think we need to move back to the that the concept that corporations are here to serve us the people corporations must serve a public interest they're not there just to make a whole lot of money for a few people at the top So let's say, okay, make a decent rate of return for your investors. Make some profits, but do it only within the context of creating a sustainable world, a just world, a world that's thriving for all children everywhere, uh, a peaceful world. If we can just set some guidelines like that and say, go ahead, make profits, but only while being socially and environmentally responsible, then we're moving toward a real system that could be a successful uh, economic, economic approach, a successful developmental approach.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, um, uh, it seems to me that much of what has transpired uh, has occurred because, as you pointed out earlier, uh, corporations don't break laws; they're able to get laws passed that work in their be- in their benefit. And in that way, to me, in my way of thinking, that's not really capitalism that is um oh well, i think you could call it i think you call it corporatism perhaps i think earlier we might have called it fascism economic fascism anyway
3: yeah i um, think that i think one of the definitions of fascism is that when uh the state and and business work in cahoots with each other and the state works to support the big businesses and i think that's certainly what's going on now
2: Oh, abs i mean i don't know how you could say otherwise right now it seems uh, more and more and at the expense of course of competition and at the expense of um, of a lot of uh, a lot of people. Right. Um in your in, also in chapter 15 of your book you wrote historians may well look back at 911 as being the threshold scene that ultimately exposed the weakness of the system. Can you explain why you think that's true?
3: Well, you know, it, it seems to me that the world really changed with 911. Uh it was, you know, what Naomi Klein in her book uh, Shock Doctrine talks uh-huh. about is one of these times when uh the people are so shocked that they will will give into anything and we we gave into basically becoming a police state uh today i i think we're are very close to a police state if we're not actually in one i i think we're may be in one but it's fairly you know, really, it's it's somewhat subtle it's it's suddenly a lot more subtle than hitler's police state or the soviet union police state at this point but it's still there and that 911 gave us this excuse and it, it also or really uh, helped elevate these corporations to a, a much more powerful position. The Supreme Court passing laws that said that, that the corporations can give as much money as they want to political campaigns, essentially. And we've seen so many changes. The Patriot Act. We've seen so many attacks on our on our personal liberties and rights as a result of of nine eleven. But now I think we're beginning to see the blowback. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are getting it. They're fed mm-hmm. up with this and. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's it's a historical trend that when governments become too repressive, that's when the people really get it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's when you have the opportunity to turn things around. I think we're at one of those phases now uh, where we have this opportunity to understand and, and to take actions that will turn things around. And that gives me great hope. And I, I see that as I travel around the world, ta- especially when I'm talking to university students. Mhm They seem to be really, really understanding the need for radical change,
2: yeah, you know, I think you're right about that, and I know that Ron Paul is most encouraged by the young people at universities too uh, who don't have uh, maybe a vested interest in the status quo yet who are looking to the future and thinking longer term about their lives and what they have ahead of them, and they're not uh, trying to protect and guard the everything they have i can say john and i know you travel probably more than i do but having traveled recently in in asia and uh, and even in switzerland uh it seems to me and comparing the what you go through um uh, through, uh, through the airports through security uh in the uh, at kennedy now they make everybody in in one uh, part of the airport take these x-rays and i had a Doctor friend of mine who said that she doesn't care what sort of pat down treatment they give her. She's not taking those X rays because the radiation is ten, a hundred times greater than it is in the dentist office. So, and it's interesting to know. I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, but it was Shernoff, who was uh, Bush's homeland security guy, who apparently is attached to the, uh, to the company that manufactures those X rays, X ray machines. So I just pass that on as an aside. I, unfortunately, we're just about out of time, John. I want you to let our listeners know. How they can follow your work, because you're very active in, uh, you know, in, in telling people and getting this message out. You're a big part of the reason that a lot of people are catching on, I think, to what's going on. How can people follow what you're doing and, and your activities?
3: Thanks, Jay. Yes, I'd love to have them subscribe to my newsletter, which comes out about twice a month. I don't overload people with it. And go to org. And you have to actually put your email address into a subscription box. I'd love to have them subscribe to my newsletter. And uh, then they can also respond to it. And I'm also on Twitter at economic underscore hitman, And I have a fan page of John Perkins on, on Facebook. So I'd love to stay in touch with your listeners through any and all of those vehicles.
2: That's fantastic, John. I had about uh, five or six pages of more questions to ask you. Maybe some other time we can have you on. So many things to talk about. You're a very interesting guest. Thank you again for coming on and sharing this very important, your very important insights with our listeners. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back uh, with our next guest. We're going to be talking uh, to another very interesting mining company. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
1: Capitalizing on North America's gold assets, Marathon Gold Corp, MOZ on the TSX, is building value through resource development in Newfoundland and Idaho. Q1 2012 is expected to be a rewarding time for Marathon, with an update resource estimate expected on its economic leprechaun gold deposit in Newfoundland, and an initial resource estimate is expected at the same time on its golden chest project in Idaho. A historical producer. Don't miss this opportunity to capitalize on today's gold price. For more info, visit www.marathon-gold.com.
0: American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable mid-tier gold producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American. AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find
5: us on the TSX Venture under MRO www.rypatchgold.com.
1: Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP gold project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's gold Goldmine. For updates, check out helioresource.com.
0: Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business.
6: Welcome to the human race. Some kind of lovely ride. I'll be sliding down. I'll be gliding Try not to try too hard It's just love arrived.
1: You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions the number 4, taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Dr. Douglas Oliver. He's a project manager and career geologist, and uh, he is now um, working um, for a very interesting company, one that I've recently also picked up in my newsletter called Meadow Bay Gold Corp. And this is a company that is a project has a project uh uh... in eastern uh... nevada really interesting project uh... gregory uh... actually one of the things i i like about gregory uh... is that he i believe um... Greg, correct me if i'm wrong but i believe you've gone to rutgers university right
4: Ah, oh, that's right i'm a former scarlet knight
2: so you're a scarlet knight and and that's where I, uh, I it was your undergraduate degree there i believe right
4: yeah, and, uh, uh, undergraduate
2: in geology. In geology, and, uh, the, I have my undergraduate in economics from Rutgers, so we have that in common. Then you got an MBA from the University of Texas at Austin and a PhD uh, in tectonics, huh? Tectonics from Southern Methodist University. Well, tectonics certainly is, um uh, important in your field now as, uh, in exploration, uh, as well. Your company is involved in a pretty exciting project, actually, and, um uh, uh, the, known as the Atlanta. Well, it's at the uh, Atlanta Gold Mine, right? It was a former producer, is that right?
4: Yeah, it was in production uh, from 1975 to 1985 on what would, by today's standards, be on a very small scale.
2: Yeah, and what sort of, is uh, it a high grade underground mine? Is that what it was?
4: No, it was an open pit. Uh, okay. it's, it was a little bit different in the sense that they actually had to mill the ore. Uh, this wasn't a heap leach, but uh, yeah, it, it, it was an open pit mine.
2: And what sort of grades did they mine? Did they mill?
4: Uh at the time uh, the, uh they were mining this the average grade was about 3 grams of gold per ton and about oh, about 30 grams of silver.
2: Okay. Now, you um okay, so Meadow Bay you're you're exploring the old section, I guess, or the old structure. What is it, a, a Bane system or a shear system, or how would you describe it?
4: It's it's a shear system. It's um, it's the old land of fault. Um, it's uh it's a pretty wide shear zone. It's about a hundred feet wide. Um, it's been solicited and that's where the gold values are.
2: Um, okay, so what are you planning to do there now? How, what have you done since you've taken over the property and, and when did Meadow Bay acquire the property?
4: Well the final paperwork was signed in early March. Mm-hmm. Um we immediately uh started to consolidate our land position. We staked a bunch of claims, we bought out a competitor's claim block. Um and then we basically put in uh, permits with the BLM and we started drilling oh, around the 1st of June. And so we've been drilling uh since then. Currently have one core rig and one RC rig going. But we should have an additional RC rig going, uh, probably by the end of the week.
2: Okay. Now, you're, so, are those drills, they're drilling, also you have made a porphyry, a discovery of a porphyry system, is that right?
4: Yeah, that was, uh, that was actually the big surprise and it certainly wasn't the more exciting thing that's, that's happened to us this year. I mean, you didn't know about this when you picked up the property, right? No, we really didn't. Um, huh. We looked at some of, the, some of the drill logs, and we had some questions about a few things that were going on on the southwest portion of the, of the pit area. And we thought it was misinterpreted by previous workers, and we went in and we started drilling it. And the very first hole we put down, yeah, we, uh, we came up with some pretty good results.
2: What kind of numbers uh, have you made public on this so far?
4: Um, the first, the first hole we drilled into it um, came up with 94 meters of a gram and a half per ton gold. Ooh, that's nice gold. Yeah, and and again, and this is in the porphyry system. It's a bulk tonnage target, um, and most of the porphyry, there's no byproduct. There's no copper. There's no silver. It's strictly just a gold porphyry
2: kind of unusual, isn't it? Usually you've, you've got copper, gold, gold, copper, maybe some silver.
4: There is, the, uh, you know, quite honestly, there's nothing like this in Nevada.
2: Um, well, you are sort of on the edge of Nevada, aren't you? You're located over on the border. What is it, Utah over there next to you? or, or?
4: Uh, Utah, yeah. We're yeah. only about eight miles from the border.
2: Yeah. Well,
4: um so you have
2: 464,500 ounces. This is a historical number, by the way, uh and 3.865 million ounces of silver. When do you expect to have a, uh, a new resource?
4: Our goal is to have a new 43101 compliant resource finished by the end of the first quarter of 2012.
2: Okay, and that would not be from the porphyry. That would probably be from the shear structure.
4: It would be from both. Oh, it would okay yeah well yeah we're going to try to uh, we'll probably cut off our drilling by uh, middle of December um, and we'll try to do is use all the drill holes that we have, including the historical ones, to come up with a new resource estimate
2: there is um a, a lot of these laboratories are very backed up. Are you getting a fairly quick turnaround time in your in your uh, assays once you send them to the lab?
4: No, I, no, I hate to say it, but no, we're not. We're yeah. running anywhere from three weeks to six weeks behind. Yeah. Okay,
2: so you've done some historical work. I mean, you've done some work and, um, what are, what is your program going forward or, or have you yet to decide that?
4: No, uh, we're, we have a fairly structured program right now. Um, we've run geophysics this fall. We're, uh, we've collected some, uh, large bulk samples that we're gonna use for metallurgical testing. We're putting together a 3D GIS database that'll help us, uh, going forward with more exploration. Um we've started the ever important process of getting permits, just cause that can be a really long lead time process. Yeah. And our, and like I say, in addition to getting our, 40, uh, you know, a new 43101, uh, estimate put together by first quarter, we'd like to start drilling again sometime in the spring.
2: Um, let's say,
4: you,
2: uh, given this resource that you have now, let's, let's forget about, not that we can forget about it, but this is just to try to understand the potential here. Uh, if we put aside the, the porphyry for a moment, you've got 464,500 ounces of gold and 3,865,000 ounces of silver on the shear structure. What kind of potential does that shear structure have for increasing the resource?
4: Well, uh, one of the reasons why we're interested with the shear structure is we know it goes forward for 3,000 feet uh, to the north. Uh, this is as far as it's been drilled thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know We use the word monotonous to describe it because you can predict pretty much the depth where you're going to hit this thing as well as the fact that it will we'll have gold over the entire strike life. Mm -hmm. we can trace it for another 9,000 feet beyond that using geophysics. Mm. And, again, this is totally undrilled. Nobody's ever drilled a hole beyond 3,000 feet. So we feel that the shear structure has got a lot of potential for a multiple of that historic resource.
2: Um, And what depth has that been drilled to, and uh, and what portion of that 3,000? is that... Resource come from that entire 3,000 foot strike length, or just a portion of it?
4: Uh, The historic resource actually comes from a portion of it. Uh Um, The deepest hole we've drilled that we've hit the shear structure uh, has a depth of about 1,500 feet.
2: Okay, so it does go down quite a ways. Then,
4: oh yeah, this Uh, is is
2: underground, uh, an underground project then.
4: Uh, ultimately, if you wanted to mine the deeper portions of this shear structure, you probably would have to go underground. But at least initially, um, a fair amount of it could be mined by open pit methods.
2: Okay, so the uh, so the so the resource that you've got, so uh, let's say the historical resource, um, was that would that be from open pit?
4: Uh, well, it, it was just a resource. It wasn't necessarily, um,
2: okay. it wasn't, you know, the, the, they didn't economic. necessarily put
4: any parameters in terms of how you would mine it.
2: Okay, so a forty three one oh one will will be more specific in that regard, I, I guess. Um, what about uh, financing? Um, because financing is always very, very important. Uh, what do you have in the way? Uh, do you have money in the bank? You're going to have to raise some more capital? How, how's your financing situation?
4: Our, well, our financing is actually very good. Um, we have never had a problem with money uh, the entire time I've been with Meadow Bay. Uh, currently, we have about five million in the bank, uh, which at our current burn rate would last us at least until next summer. Uh, my guess is we'll probably go back to the markets before before next summer and perhaps get some more. You know, you know, you know, boost the. You know, boost our resources up a little bit more, but for right now, we have enough money to handle everything we have on our plate.
2: You have uh, some other uh, other targets as well on this property besides uh, the the porphyry and the uh, and the shear structure.
4: Yeah, actually, we do. We've um, uh, we've staked over eleven thousand acres out there, so we have the entire Atlanta district. Um, we we. Have two satellite projects that we've been doing work on uh all throughout the fall, and we'll probably ready those for at least some exploratory drilling by next year. Uh, we have other geophysical targets, including one that we think might be another porphyry hmm. you know it certainly has the uh, geochemical signature of the original porphyry uh, on it
2: oh, it's really. Really, very interesting. I don't believe I told our listeners uh, that your symbol, uh, where you trade in Toronto, under the symbol MAY, and you can buy the stock in the U.S. under the symbol MAYGF. Forty-one point six million shares outstanding at a dollar sixteen a share means it has a market cap a little less than fifty million. It seems to me, uh, it, it really seems. Uh, uh, it really seems to me, Douglas, that uh, uh, that you have a tremendous upside potential here for a company that's trading at this market cap. Um, you, you just uh, take a minute, perhaps, to tell us about your management team. What are your your, your background and the other key members?
4: Yeah, um, like I say, I'm a career geologist. Um, I've I've uh, got uh, three other ge- well, sorry, four other geologists out there at the mine site. Um, I have two very senior guys, uh, Bill Reed. Who's the VP of Exploration? Who's pretty much pretty much guides everything we do out there. Another very senior guy named Richard Dorman, and then we have two junior geologists. Uh, we've got very good support staff um, on the corporate side. Bob Dennings, our president and CEO, um, he certainly makes sure that everything is available for us when we need it. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, there's there are some additional people that know you know handle some of the market stuff for us. It's, it's a very good team. Uh, we yeah. all get along very well and everybody's very confident in what they do.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, I do believe also that there's probably some people of, of, of good financial means that are standing behind the company and are watching it very carefully too. Some of the people that, uh, that I know are involved. So it's, it's, uh, it's a good recipe. Uh, anything else you'd like to mention before we conclude our discussion today?
4: No just that though, like I say we have another month of drilling to go. Um we'll probably be releasing drill results I would think all throughout the winter uh, mm-hmm. just because of the way the labs are backed up. But um but so far we haven't had a bad hole yet. <laughs> I guess I should knock on wood if I say that but uh but uh but you know it's, it, this has been a, a really fun project. Uh the the geologists that are working out there we're all we're all constantly motivated by what we're doing just because, you know, every every day is another surprise. And fortunately, almost all the surprises have been good ones so far.
2: Well, it's really a, a very interesting story. It is, a, it is a company that I'm following in my newsletter, um, and I, I really think this is an exciting story. I want to thank you very much for uh, coming on to talk to us today about the story, Douglas, and we'll look forward to keeping track of, of your company's progress going forward. Folks, uh, that's all the time we've got in this segment. Don't go away, though. we got Roger Wiegand coming back. Um, he's going to be with us for some of his thoughts on the market. So don't go away. We'll be right back uh, with myself and Roger Wiegand to wrap up on today's show.
0: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the Southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone project located in Arizona is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable mid-tier gold producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American. AmericanBodanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Meadow Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol M-A-Y-G-F on the O-T-C-Q-X or M-A-Y on the T-S-X Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com gold in Nevada the right stuff in the right place
1: Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits both Namibia and Tanzania are mining friendly countries and helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders helio is drilling its SMP gold project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential Potential for a multi million ounce resource, Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Navatsjap Gold Mine. For updates, check out helioresource.com.
5: www.rypatchgold.com
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
6: Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. We've only got a few minutes here, but we do have Roger Wiegand with us, so I'm going to jump right into it. Roger, tell us, uh, what's, what's on your mind? What's, uh, what's important to you?
6: Well, the super committee failure this week, uh, which we did expect and did forecast in our letter, uh, really was no surprise. Uh, the next thing uh, is that, uh, they're supposed to have mandatory cuts since the committee did fail, and we also reported there not there aren't going to be any mandatory cuts, and lo and behold, uh, I, I saw a note on the internet that um, John McCain and Maxine Waters are in joint effort to defeat the mandatory cuts hmm. right now. So I mean, the whole thing is getting to be a bad joke,
2: mm-hmm. worse
6: than a, worse than a bad joke. Yeah. And uh, the next big problem, of course, is Europe has not resolved their problems, and the contagion is spreading uh, into France, Italy uh in Spain and uh the bonds are being um, the spreads are going wider, people are getting more worried, everybody's waiting to see what Germany's gonna do. And I think Germany will give throw them a bone temporarily, but I think that for in the longer view, I'd say intermediate longer view, what they're going to do is to they're gonna exit the Euro go alone. That's gonna cost them a lot of export trade, but I think that's the only route they've got.
2: Interesting uh to note, uh, we had John Perkins on as our main guest today, and Perkins talked about how a growing number of company countries are basically saying, "We're not going to pay you. We're just we're just going to default. We're not going to pay you. Uh, trapped us into this. You uh, y- you you lent us all this money. The people didn't borrow it. The governments borrowed it. They're illegitimate governments. So I don't know if uh, that's the the same argument that will be used in Europe, but certainly used in places uh, other places like Ecuador." Uh in some of the other countries where you had dictators that took on debt and the people you know, the people aren't really having any say about it, are they, Roger, in many cases. No, they aren't. I mean the government and
6: the politicians just seem to go their own way and they don't care what the voters uh really have to say or or to do about it. Uh, But the voters are merely to be used for their votes and after that uh they're just trash as far as the politicians are concerned. Yeah. You can see things starting to turn because it's happening in Greece. Uh, Iceland basically told the bankers they weren't going to pay. Yeah. And uh Ireland said they weren't going to do it either, but uh their politicians did capitulate and say that they're going to pay and the result of that was many Irish citizens who had the money uh packed up and left and they're gone to New Zealand and Australia. And they're mm-hmm. not coming back.
2: Mhm. Well, it's disturbing uh but at the same time it is very gold friendly all of this, isn't it?
6: Absolutely gold friendly. Uh, we had a sell-off this week on the super committee announcement. Also, that sell-off, Jay, had to do with the options expiring on the 22nd of November for the December gold options and silver options. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people weren't paying attention to that, but that did have an effect on the market. In any event, we had a full five-wave down selling event, and today we bottomed out and we touched a low of gold at uh, 1666. And the price right now after hours, futures trading on gold for December, uh, $1,700.50.
2: Okay, Roger, unfortunately we are out of time. Folks, that's all the time we do have this week. I want to thank you for listening. Sorry, Roger, to cut you off, but we are out of time. Just to let you know, next week our special guest will be Kathy Fetke. Uh, she's uh, uh, in the real estate industry. Are there some bargains in real estate yet? Well, Kathy will be here to tell us about that. Also, hoping to have Brent Cook with me. He's a highly esteemed geologist and newsletter writer as well. I want to thank my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. To our sponsors for making this economically viable. Thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
1: Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific time, three PM Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is the
6: time is important.